You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Hey, everyone. Before we get started, I just want to apologize in advance for the poor sound quality on this episode. We had some technical issues while recording, so thanks for your patience. Welcome to another episode of Impact Investing. I'm your host, David O'Leary, and today on the podcast, we have a guest who is somebody who I have a lot of lot in common with, got a lot of similarities in our kind of stories, backgrounds, interests, Although I have not been named as uh, one of Vancouver's top 40 under 40, which she has. So she's got that over me. So Alexa Blaine is on the podcast. And welcome, Alexa. Hi. Hi, David. How are you? I'm great. I'm really excited to have you on. Excited to be here. Great. So we met maybe a year, year and a half ago now. And it was just on LinkedIn. I think I had stumbled across your profile at some point. Yes, and I think when we when we first connected, I was actually on mat leave and uh, a little bit right. foggy brained, but we managed to have a productive conversation anyway. Yeah, why don't you give everybody on the podcast just a quick kind of overview of who you are, what you do? Sure. Uh, yeah, so I'm the chief operating officer of Deepkin Impact, and uh, we are a impact focused asset management company based in Vancouver, Canada. We've been investing for about 10 years, and uh, our mission is really to manage and distribute uh, the best quality impact investment products to Canadian investors. Um, And uh, one of our key focus areas is Latin America and the Caribbean, where we manage uh, the Deepkin Impact Fund, and we uh, we invest across a variety of uh, impact themes, including women's entrepreneurship, renewable energy, affordable housing, and uh, healthcare. That's awesome. And you guys have um, specific SDGs that you're, you're focused on as well through sort of that align with uh, those those sectors, broadly speaking, right? Like I believe good health, number three, and number four, um, good economic growth, is number eight. So um, it, it, you do have a very sort of development focus to your, to your work. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Um, we've aligned our impact objectives with the sustainable development goals, and we target five uh, in particular, um, gender equality, good health and well-being, quality education, affordable clean energy, and uh, decent work and economic growth. Um, and actually, those were themes that we've been pursuing for 10 years since we started investing, but it was only in the last few years since um, the sustainable development goals were, were released that we um, were really able to harmonize our impact reporting with those goals. And it's been uh, it's been a really great experience. Uh, in particular, our investors have responded really positively. Um, I think it's a framework that resonates well with them, and it just makes it so much easier to talk about these goals and um, to measure impact consistently with some of our peer funds and with the ways that some of our investors are are looking at their uh, portfolios across different products. Yeah, that's really so. A couple things. One is. Um, for, I mean, as much as possible in the podcast, try to move away from jargon and then explain concepts because I imagine there's going to be a range of listeners um, coming to this with different kind of understandings and backgrounds. Can you just give everybody a quick one-two on what are sustainable development goals? Sure. Well, it's it's a set of global goals that were um, kind of spearheaded by the United Nations, but I think they had like 
50 countries on board with um, with uh, creating the framework. And it, it was the next iteration of the Millennium Development Goals, which you might remember, but those MDGs were really focused on you know what do we what needs to happen in developing countries whereas sustainable development goals what's what's really great about them is that they apply to developed and developing countries alike so it's um it's a set of goals that you know we can pursue um that address um all of the different things that you that we need to create in order for us to have sustainable development globally that's, that's wonderful thank you when i look at the impact investment space i think about uh, a spectrum of approaches that one might take to the space, ranging from pure self-interested capitalism, which is maximizing shareholder value and profit at the expense of all else, all the way down to the other end of the spectrum where you might have something that's completely philanthropic in nature, not expecting any return. And then you've got the impact investment space, which is in between those sort of two extremes, which is both profit and, and purpose, um, and that there's some balance between those things. And I, I always find it interesting in my own head to think about where a firm or an organization and an individual sits on that spectrum. You know, is it primarily profit? And if we can make some impact, great. Is it a fairly equal balance between the two? Is it primarily, you know, making an impact? And if we can, you know, generate a bit of profit, that's great too. Where would you sort of fit, fit you guys on that um, spectrum? Yeah, so I mean, I, I definitely think we're somewhere somewhere in the middle, um, but uh, we, we do consider ourselves to be, uh, you know, uh, return focused. Uh, within the kind of impact investment community. Um, we, you know, the genesis of our firm is a little bit different than a lot of other impact asset managers. Um, you know, impact, a lot of it really started from, you know, development banks, which are funded by government, or from the philanthropic space, foundations, um, and family offices. Uh, whereas when we started investing uh, 10 years ago, it was with our own personal capital and the capital of friends and family. And it grew organically from there. And, you know, even now, um, you know, although we've expanded to, to lots of third party investors, um, uh, we're still, uh, we have 100% private sector capital um, funding our, um, our fund. Uh, and so for us, it's always been important that in addition to investing in businesses that um, meet our impact objectives, that we're also um, providing a strong and consistent return back to our investors. Um, because, uh, you know, ultimately that's what's going to, uh, allow us to distribute to more ordinary Canadians and individuals who, you know, really need to think about their savings and their retirement and they're not able to provide that concessionary capital. Um, maybe that's jargon, but, you know, to provide, to, to invest at a below market rate of return, like foundations and, and governments might be able to. Yeah, that's that's interesting. You know, the other thing that strikes me is that I, I know that there are listeners hearing me talk about that sort of spectrum and saying, well, you know, it's it's not uh, it's not a given that you've got to trade off profitability for for impact. And I think that that certainly um, there are a lot of areas where that's true. But I, I I personally just believe that there are certain cases where there is a definite trade off that just needs to be made. And particularly as you sort of move down the sort of uh, I guess economic pyramid to the more vulnerable, um, uh, the most vulnerable people in the most challenging conditions. There are just risks and costs that mount um, if you want to get to, you know, remote villages and disaster-stricken <laughs> um, countries. I'm curious, what do you think about that sort of? Um, Absolutely. Like, although we're impact focused, um, there's some things that uh, that we don't that we won't invest in, right? So for instance, we don't invest in Venezuela. Not that there aren't 
you know, a lot of really important things to be done in Venezuela, but it's just not a market that we feel comfortable investing in and that we feel comfortable, you know, that we could protect our investors against some of the risks there. So that's definitely a market where we would like to see, you know, other investors that, um, you know, maybe are able to um, provide more of a, of a grant or um, a first loss capital to participate there. Um, and, and, you know, similarly, you know, we invest in, in some businesses that are able to provide some of their services profitably, but not all of them. And those services, like sometimes it can be, um, you know, we invest in, in, um, nonprofits that provide, uh, loans to, to low income women. And they're also looking to provide healthcare services to those women, which is super important for, for entrepreneurs. Um, but it was, it was five or 10 years building those healthcare services before they could be delivered profitably. And that didn't happen without the support of some uh, really important philanthropic investors. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so just to change gears a little bit, can you, so chief operating officers, tell everybody what's your day to day? Like, what are you responsible for doing at Deepkin? Well, we're still a small firm. So, you know, in an entrepreneurial environment, you still really need to be a jack of all trades. And we all do a lot of different things. Um, but mostly I, I, um, uh, I'm responsible for uh, the, uh, the process of bringing investors into the fund, the process of dispersing investments into our portfolio companies, structuring transactions, um, securities and regulatory compliance. Um, accounting, well, back office, <laughs> administration, all of that good stuff that most people, I think, don't love, but I do. <laughs> yeah, that makes definitely makes you a nerd, but um, that's cool. <laughs> I can understand. I can appreciate that. Um, so I, I, I do, and I do want to talk a little bit more about sort of Deakin, some of the offerings, some of the experiences you guys have had there. But um, before we get too far down that track, let, let's just reverse course. I, I, I always find it really interesting to hear about people's stories and like where they started, like an origin stuff. So like, where did you grow up? And then what happened along the way? I, we were talking just before we started recording. And I said, you know, I think it's interesting that we're yet it, 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 the youngest sort of working cohort now is just starting at a place where you could be educated as an impact investor or a social entrepreneur where it's now in universities. But for our demographic, um, we're close to the same age. You know, there was no course, there was no certification, there was no you know, thing that you did. And then, oh, I got a job as an impact investor. So tell me about that story and how you made decisions along the way that led to where you are now. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm originally from Vancouver, born and raised, um, and I went to university in Toronto. I did a Bachelor of Economics and a Master's in Financial Economics, and then I started working on Bay Street, uh, and I, I worked in private equity um, with uh, Macquarie Bank and then later with Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, both huge organizations, um, you know, doing, you know, deals in the hundreds of, of millions of dollars, and it was you know, I really enjoyed it. I found it, um, I really enjoyed valuing businesses and structuring transactions. I enjoyed the people I worked with, but I was starting to crave just a, maybe a, like a closer connection to... Were these, pub, were these private equity deals that you were yeah. structuring and valuing? Okay. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just, I wanted to feel a little bit closer to where the actual, to, to, to how the money that we were deploying was actually affecting kind of people and communities on the ground. But you know, what, like, where does that come from? Why? Like, when does that um, start for you? I guess I kind of hit my late twenties, and it was just you know I'd spent six years on on Bay Street, and um, but but like most people go their whole careers on Bay Street and never stop to think about that. Like, 
there, there, do you, was there a moment? Is there something in your life that? Oh, I, I guess it's hard to put my finger on. Um, maybe it was just that kind of uh, whether I had a good day or a bad day at work or I did well or poorly, it, uh, you know, I could only make a difference of a basis point or two on the, on the portfolio. Um, and yeah, I, uh, yeah, I can't really trace it to a to a specific moment. It's just a tr- like something that's entering your thought more and more over time, and you just are increasingly feeling sort of disillusioned, and or feeling like you want to do something more meaningful. Is that? Yeah, I think so. I think it was a combination of you know wanting to um, to to do more in finance, to do to to use the skill set that I developed, um, to do something that I thought would be rewarding. Um, and also to um, test my own entrepreneurial mettle a little bit um, mm. and kind of move out from large organizations and uh, kind of become more hands-on with how a business is actually grown. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I, I, I can appreciate that. Um, okay, so you're working now on Bay Street. You've been through a few big shops and you um, are doing private equity and you're just increasingly feeling disillusioned, what's the sort of step that you take from there? Well, I have to say, I didn't know, I mean, impact investing didn't really exist then. Um, and I had heard about microfinance. So microfinance was quite popular um, at that point and was starting to get a lot of um, kind of uh, press. And, and I, I didn't know a lot about it. In fact, an embarrassing little amount. But uh, I decided to sell everything I owned on Craigslist and move to Johannesburg and take a job with uh, a company called African Alliance. It's a pan-African investment bank and uh, help them to build out uh, microfinance and microinsurance businesses in sub-Saharan Africa. And I really just went on a, on a three-month contract, uh, which is kind of going to be a little bit of a, of a reset, um, and uh, ended up staying for three years. Uh, it was an, an incredible experience. Um, you know, it was uh, it was that opportunity that I've been looking for to really uh, just get thrown in <laughs> to, to the deep end and start really um, working to, to to build some new businesses. And um, you know, I was also very fortunate just to meet other women through that process. Um, you know, who also had kind of that entrepreneurial spirit and uh, you know were uh, I guess kind of running uphill on the playing field. Um, you know, just faced a lot of barriers um, that that I hadn't, and um, you know, I guess there's only only so much that anyone can do um, to to address you know some of the barriers that women, I would say, you know, many or, or even most women in, in our world face to achieving kind of their professional and and, and personal goals. Um, but I guess I did learn that you know there are things we can do to, to chip away at them, um, and so I kind of saw what the impact is of providing capital. Um, of, of providing of providing people that want to start businesses with access to capital and also um, you know that broader suite of services that you need as an entrepreneur to succeed so education and business training um, healthcare services childcare um, and you know I think it was those experiences that I really kind of packed back with me when I when I came home to Canada uh, and, and home to Vancouver three years later. Yeah, I mean that's another um, sim- common commonality we have. We were both in South Africa roughly the same time. I was, I think, coming to Cape Town when you were leaving. Um, yes. 
Yeah. Uh, and so you're with African Alliance, then three-year contract, sorry, three-month contract turns into almost three years in living in South Africa. And then what's sort of that decision process from there? You've got another opportunity and you moved back or you just wanted to, you'd had enough and wanted to move um, yeah, it was just distance from family. I mean, it takes 35 hours to, to get back to Vancouver from uh, from Johannesburg. And I was just at a different phase of life at that point where, you know, it's maybe time to, to settle down a little bit. And uh, so I um, I came back to Vancouver without a job. And, and I really thought I'd kind of have to give it up, you know, that, you know, that was, it was a great experience, but I was going to have to go back into mainstream asset management because, you know, jobs like that just don't exist in Canada. Um, and I was really, really fortunate to, to at that time, meet um, my business partners at the Deepkin Group, who um, had been investing in a way that really aligned well with, with my own philosophy um, and, and wanted to, to grow and expand that business and actually you know, create a new asset management division, um, which was Deepkin Impact. And so we formed that um, about six, six years ago. Um, and, uh, and, and that's where I've been ever since. Awesome. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that's very cool. Um, so Deepkin now is how many people? Um, well, we have about 20 people um, on the consulting side of our business. And on asset management, we have about five full-time and continuing to grow. So um, definitely feeling the need to add a few more resources. <laughs> right. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Uh, and what on the consulting side, what do you guys do? Um, well, we do... Uh, financial consulting primarily. Um, we do have a lot of work with the, with the public sector, um, so advising on major capital projects and procurements, um, and uh, with a focus on renewable energy, uh, healthcare, those sectors. Cool. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, you've got a number of um, offerings that Deep can impact um, from sort of fund offerings to private equity, and they've got a range of terms and kind of target rates of return. Can you give the kind of quick rundown of that? Yeah, sure. Um, so the Deepkin Impact Fund, uh, we we offer two different securities. One is LP units, um, which have a uh, variable return. We target about six to eight percent for those um, securities, and they invest in um, a diversified portfolio of, of impact businesses in Latin America and the Caribbean. And then we have Deepkin Impact Bonds, um, which are um, a senior security, so lower risk, and have a fixed coupon of six percent. Um, and those invest in the in the same portfolio. Um, we currently have about ten companies um, across the financial inclusion, renewable energy, affordable housing uh, spaces. And, yeah. And those um, the the bonds are there's a couple different terms with different rates of return. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So what's yeah. the give give a ballpark of the term and the interest rate? Do do you know off the top of your head? Yeah, sure. So um, the five-year bonds are 6%. Uh, then we offer a, a short-term bond at 2% and a two-year bond at 4%. That's really interesting. Um, so I, I had a um, another guest uh, uh, recently. We were chatting a little bit about this. And um, I find this fascinating. So when we're talking about having to give up returns or not for your your investment portfolio and whether a uh, uh, an impact or a socially responsible portfolio will perform a traditional portfolio over the next 10 years. I think it may be the bond space that, you know, if you, if you do that math and you look at it and it does turn out that the sort of value space portfolio performs, um, it wouldn't surprise me at all for the, the lion's share of that comes from on the, on the bond side. Um, you know, thinking about an individual investor, 
I'm investing in a bond fund right now and I'm kind of looking at pretty meager yields and, and I have a ton of interest rate risk, mm-hmm. nowhere to go but up. Um, it, you know, over the next 10 years, would it surprise me at all if bonds are in the red on traditional bonds? And then, you know, these with a number of, um, you know, we were to look at like solar share and co-power and a number of these, um, and you guys looking at kind of two, three, four, five year term fixed income, you know, bond instruments paying four or five, 6%. And now assuming there's no defaults and you, you manage those risks well, that I think there may be a dramatic outperformance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I tend to agree with you. And I mean, it certainly has been a good investment um, over the last several years when interest rates have been very low, um, that we've been able to provide that kind of stable recurring yield that a lot of people want for their portfolio. I mean, just most of the people I talk to, you know, they don't really want the, to double their money in some high-risk investment. They really just want, just give me, you know, a stable, consistent return that I can count on and that I can know my money is going to just grow slowly over time. Uh, and that's what we look, that's what we seek to deliver. Um, and, you know, through experiences like the global financial crisis, um, you know, when equities can get super volatile, I mean, of course, you're going to be really happy to be in, um, in a fixed income position there too. Right, yeah, right, right. So, uh, and then you guys do have a private equity offering. I can't remember if you mentioned it earlier in your... No, I didn't actually. Yeah. So um, as I mentioned, most of our assets are in Latin America and the Caribbean, but we're increasingly looking at, um, you know, investments closer to home. And so we also have a private equity fund um, that we use for for those investments. And and really, we're looking at similar uh, investment themes. So uh, financial inclusion, renewable energy, affordable housing, but in our own home market. And healthcare. Um, so we've invested in a few different uh, things. Like one is a telemedicine provider um, that provides uh, healthcare services for people living in remote and rural communities in Canada. We've invested in a uh, responsible lending uh, platform, which is like an alternative to payday loans. Um, and uh, we've also invested in uh, renewable energy uh, in, in the United States. Solar. Cool. And the, yeah. you, you guys are still raising capital there for that? Yeah, okay. yeah. We're, I think we're raising capital right now for across all of those vehicles. Oh, okay. um, yeah. So f- just reversing course a little bit, I, I, I guess one question is, I think that, as I understand it, a number of your offerings have fairly low minimums, like you've gotten down to 5K, right? Yeah, I mean, we would love to go lower. Um, I know that that's still a fairly large investment size for, for most of us. Um, but it's just, uh, it's really important to us to be able to distribute to, to kind of ordinary Canadians, like to individuals and not just to big institutions. Um, so, you know, our bonds are RRSP and TFSA eligible. So that usually helps a lot. That's where 90% of Canadian savings are, are held. Um, and we try and keep the minimum as low as possible. Um, and then, you know, we're constantly working to try and, um, you know, make it even easier, like to, to have our offerings available on credit union platforms and other places where people are already doing their banking and their investing. Uh, because currently, the, the vast majority of impact investment products are still private market products, um, which just come with an added layer of uh, complexity that can be challenging for people that are new to impact investing. You know, just a lot of forms and sometimes you have to open a new, a different kind of account and, and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, we really want to reduce those barriers. Yeah, I mean, it's a right now, if you you have to be particularly motivated to want to build a, a portfolio of 
impact investments and include them in your portfolio because of the, as you mentioned, the kind of the additional hoops that you typically have to go through to, to have that done. So I love the fact that you guys are doing things like making them RSP and TFSA eligible and trying to reduce the minimum investment amounts to make them accessible for a wide variety of people. It does feel sort of just <laughs> against the spirit of what this all is, is if, if these impact investments are only ever available to ultra wealthy um, uh, investors. So um, kudos on, uh, on that front. Um, can you talk a little bit about for somebody listening who's you know, hears about a deep impact bond and has heard your description of it and says, okay, you know, that's actually really interesting. Can you give them a sort of real tangible, and this can be anecdotal, sense of what type of impact are they having in the world by making an investment in that? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, some of, one of our core holdings uh, in the fund is uh, Home Repair. Uh, it means for women in Spanish. Uh, and it's, a, it's, an, it's an NGO uh, that has operations in five Latin American countries. Um, and we've been supporting them for going on seven or eight years now. Uh, and the fund has invested in their Mexican, Argentinian, and uh, Peruvian operations. And they um, are doing some incredible work to, you know, they, they serve over 300,000 women in Latin America, providing loans to start up businesses, sometimes as low as like $500 to start a new business. And in addition to the capital, and you know, perhaps more importantly, even they provide um, education and business training. So, you know, this could be like how to create a budget for your new business, how to price your products, um, and, and those sorts of kind of crucial um, services when, when you're when you're um, looking to to do something uh, new, right? Um, and then they also uh, have you know been providing healthcare services, often. It's the only primary care that women are receiving if they're living in um, more remote areas. And, and that includes not just the woman um, who's borrowing, but also her whole family. And as anyone that has stayed home with a sick child knows, um, that can be really critical to, to being able to, to get to work is having that kind of um, primary care uh, provided for your whole family. Um, and, you know, they're also really committed to innovation in the space. So one of the things we like is that they're also providing counseling service for counseling services for gender-based violence, um, which can be another um, really uh, difficult and challenging factor that women entrepreneurs are dealing with. Um, and uh, so, I mean, the, the, that's on the financial inclusion side. On the renewable energy side, uh, we've invested in a run of river hydro project in Peru, uh, a solar project in El Salvador. Um, we are evaluating an affordable housing project in El Salvador. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of... Uh, of businesses that um, you know we feel are really doing good things in their communities. That's really cool. That's great. It's a real sort of tangible example for people to really get their head around. Well, and you can always go and visit them, right? I mean, we're, that's one of the things we like to encourage our investors to do. I mean, if you ever have any reason to be in Latin America and you'd like to check out um, one of these companies, that's something that we can facilitate. That's really cool. That's that's good to know. I didn't uh, I didn't realize that. How, have you done a lot of trips? Personally? No, the oh, for organized a lot of trips, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, obviously, most it, it's often the, the institutional investors that kind of take you up on that. But we did, yeah. we do have one investor that was um, that they were going to be in Honduras, and we were able to uh, to arrange that for them. So you know, yeah. happy to do that. That's <laughs> there's awesome. nothing. There's nothing that compares to actually seeing the companies on the ground, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the emotional sort of aspect of connecting with people and seeing firsthand is, is just pr profound. 
Yeah. I have this theory that the um it's not a theory, but I have this thought that the mm-hmm. that it should just sort of be mandatory that every citizen of a you know, developed country has to go spend some period of time working in a developing country for some limited period of time um, and connect with, with somebody who, who has far less than you very, you know, at a very firsthand uh, level. And it's, I, I just, I, I refuse to believe that the, that there are many people who would leave an experience like that and come back and still, you know, just be um, and not care about impacting it. Um, so yeah. I think this is one of the best ways we can sort of mobilize people to, to, to actually care. Yeah. I think there's so much we can learn, um, from people that are kind of building businesses with so much less than we have. Right. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's remarkable. The, 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 the challenges and the ingenuity that you see, the, the challenges that are being overcome and the ingenuity to, to, to overcome them. And I mean, yeah. it's, it's a roller coaster of emotion, uh, those, those types of trips, but, um, really. Yeah, it's, but, but great learning experiences. So um, let's talk a little bit about what do you see as, because I'm, a, I'm a, an anal, a analyst by background. Um, when I left Bay Street, I had been, you know, when I was on Bay Street, I was sort of evaluating investment funds and trying to think about what could go wrong with them. Um, what would you say are the risks of what could go wrong that would make a, a Deakin investment sort of not... Um, not not achieve its target return and or lose money? Um, well, I mean, when you're investing in emerging markets, it's not really if there's a default, it's kind of when there's a default. Um, a lot of the companies we're investing in are, are midsize. Um, they're still, um, you know, starting to build the kind of governance structures that you need um, as, you, as you grow and as you become a larger company. Um, and so, you know, we, uh, we try to think very... Um, pragmatically about about future defaults in our portfolio and to kind of uh, set aside some money in advance for those sorts of eventualities, so provisioning uh, within our fund. Um, And, you know, yeah, so I mean, I just think it's something that you need to kind of be prepared for. Um, But, you know, we've set our return targets um, such that, you know, we think that even with a default in the portfolio, uh, we can still deliver those returns to our investors. And that and very much is right, your job as the investment manager is to construct a portfolio in a way that you sort of manage those risks so that if you do have a default in any one of those investments, that it's not tanking your entire portfolio and it's um, you're managing to find these sort of businesses that aren't un, are unlikely to there be, you know, to use jargon, uncorrelated. So they're unlikely to all uh, suffer at the same time for the same reason. Um, so that's diversification by geography, by sector, things like that. Yeah, I mean, obviously that that's critical, um, and that's kind of your first line of defense. Um, but the other thing for us is really um, the networks and the depth of your relationship with management is is absolutely critical because it's really you know do you trust this person? Ultimately, it comes down to that. And so, you know, we've built up our network over ten years, and um, you know, when we start investing with a new company, we start really small. We get to know them. We uh, you know you know keep the investment low for a couple of years before scaling up and those are really the most important things to preventing, um, you know, something like that happening in your portfolio. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, so I'm, Oh, I'm curious just generally, does Deakin have any plans to move beyond, um, sort of the Americas and the Latin America Caribbean focus in the 
future, do you think? Well, I personally would love to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's challenging from a, from a time zone and travel perspective. Um, yeah. And so, you know, we still have uh, see a lot of pipeline in the markets where we operate. So we're op- opening an office in Costa Rica. We'll probably also be opening an office um, or expanding our office in, in Lima. Um, and, you know, I think continue to focus on from Canada to Argentina. It seems like a, a large enough sandbox. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, is, is it, it's primarily like logistics and scaling at a rate that you guys can actually achieve and rather than, hey, we have a, a, a heart only for or a particular skill set that only lends itself to uh, a particular region? Yeah, I, th- I think it's more that. I mean, just my, my, my view is that impact investing is a very high touch form of investing and it doesn't really scale that well um you know there's a lot of talk you know impact investing is kind of fashionable now and you know you hear people saying like you know you got to get the pension funds in so why don't you just increase what you're doing to uh, you know a billion dollars and then you know you could take large investments from pension funds and and things like that and you know it'd be so nice but like what we do like the, the 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 amount of um, kind of hands-on work that you need to do and the time you need to spend with your portfolio companies, um, it, it doesn't scale that quickly. Yeah, I, I can understand that. Yeah. So you mentioned about sort of getting the institu- you know, the institutional investors and, and getting money um, into the funds. This is, I think, a, an issue that the entire industry wrestles with right now is what are those hurdles in your mind to getting getting the, the, the momentum going, get more and more capital um, coming to this side of the space? What are those things that have to happen? Well, I mean, yeah, like those big institutional investors, they need scale, right? Like when I was working at Canada Pension Plan, like we wouldn't really look at something that was less than a $200 million investment in a fund. Um, and there are very few impact funds that can absorb that kind of capital. And, you know, we're starting to see you know, these very large impact funds being launched by mainstream asset managers. Um, and, you know, time will kind of tell as to, you know, the extent to which they are able to be impactful and to report meaningful impact metrics back to investors. Um, you know, so I think one path to scale for the impact industry might be kind of closer alignment between impact asset managers, kind of a network of boutiques that would allow us to, um, scale the areas that can be scaled, which, you know, might not necessarily be managing the portfolio companies and, and finding the right investments and, and, and doing the due diligence. You know, I think that still is, um, is going to stay something that you need a lot of um, labor and person power. Um, but there's a lot on the back end, like, you know, the challenges of, 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 of being an asset management company around fund administration, operations, accounting, investor relations, fundraising. A lot of that stuff, I think we could probably work more closely together um, to to help scale um, all of our businesses um, together. But do you think it's a, it feels to me a little bit like a chicken and egg, right? Like there's it's not the scale for large institutional investors to really dive in. But I just want to get the sense they're clamoring to make those investments. It's, I was out with a buddy who runs a uh, you know, pension fund at um uh, university and he you know, was sort of talking about the fact that even on their SRI side, like they, they just don't have a mandate that allows them to an investment policy statement that allows them to factor in values. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And so they, you know, they're constrained to, to some degree 
Um, so I'm, I'm like, do you, do you get a sense? Do you ever have investors that are too big for your funds that you just, that's not worth their time or you're not talking to them anyway because they're not even approaching you uh, to begin with. But I, I guess I'm wondering if you've gotten a sense whether there's any interest and demand on the institutional side. I have heard some of that same feedback that your friend um, described, which is that for some large institutional investors, they um, they feel like they don't have the mandate to invest in impact. And I, I think that kind of goes back to the idea that you'd be sacrificing returns. And so you're doing something that's not in the best interest of your beneficiaries if you do impact investing. But you know now there really are the products to show the track record that that's not necessarily the case with all impact investments and that there are sectors where institutional investors can achieve market returns. Um, and so I think we just kind of have to keep showing the results um, and and they will come around. I mean, we're already seeing it with foundations that increasingly foundations are moving towards um, at least having a responsible investing um, overlay on their on their portfolios, but then also um, moving towards 100% impact. So there's a number of foundations that have now signed the you know 100% impact that they want the whole portfolio to be impactful. Um, and so I think you know hopefully additional foundations are going to follow the lead um, the lead of those ones, which to date are mostly in the U.S. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's really interesting. Um, uh, so that also just I'm curious for your perspective on that. My I I I love the idea of foundations and. Um, other large investors coming to, hey, we want to meaningfully enter the impact investment space. Um, I, I worry a little bit about making sure that they're being, they're pr- actually just prudently managing the portfolios and not getting carried away with a rush to impact. Um, and I don't think there's a lot of organizations that are rushing it, but, um, but I do, I do worry a little bit about the 100% um, impact, especially when you look at a space like Canada. If you're talking about like a Canadian community foundation, for instance, mm-hmm. just because the, the number of investment options are still quite limited in Canada. And so can you really get proper diversification for your portfolio? And it would just be such a shame for the entire, it would just be a big setback to the entire industry if, if there was some sort of high profile blow up of a foundation or you know institutional portfolio that led people to cast dispersions on the entire concept of impact investing. So I do you, and I may be just being nervous (laughs) Nelly on that, but I, I, I'd be lying if I said I didn't think about it. No, it's a really good point. And I mean, especially in Canada, a lot of the impact options that do exist are kind of venture cap or or earlier stage investments that, you know, can kind of go one of two ways. Um, I think most of the foundations that are moving towards 100% impact, it's not like they want to do it right away. It's more of a longer term ambition, um, kind of a strategic um, goal. Uh, so I think, you know, they are kind of waiting for the product to be available. But, you know, we do need to make sure that as a as the impact industry that we're providing products at different risk return points, right? Um, and really filling out that spectrum so that we are able to meet the needs of, you know, a lot of different um, portfolios and investment objectives. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. So um, we're getting close to the the end here. I'll give a couple last mm-hmm. questions. One is uh, a question that in my you know previous um, life I would ask uh, a lot of investment managers, and which is, do you own uh, any of Deepkin's own uh, your own firm's offerings? Is that something? Does a lot of the 
I love that question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it comes back to the chef eat their own cooking. Yeah, no, we're our own largest investor. So about a quarter of the capital in our fund comes from the principles of, of d Impact, including myself. Um, I think my husband is getting a little bit tired. <laughs> Every time there's money in our bank account, I'm sweeping it into, <laughs> into our fund. But uh, for me, that's, I, I don't want to put my money anywhere else. You know, like uh, if, if you... I wouldn't want to be able. I wouldn't want to be recommending our investment to other people if I didn't have a lot of my own money there myself. For me, that's just really important for integrity and yeah. So I love that. That's your response. It's also, you know, when when I we started asking that I ran the analyst team at Morningstar for a number large number of years, and we would evaluate you know traditionally or most often mutual fund. Um, managers and their portfolios. And when we started asking those questions in very public sort of setting, hey, are, do you invest in the funds that you run? There were very few firms that would be comfortable responding to that question. Um, yeah. And I think it was A, telling about their transparency and B, telling about how much they were actually putting into their portfolios that they didn't want to talk about it. Um, and so I, to me, your, your response there Maybe you know it's a sample size of one because you don't represent every impact investment firm out there. But I, my guess is, if I ask a lot of impact investment firms and individuals that question, and we're going to see probably over this the series of yeah. podcasts what those results look like. But I'm going to guess it's real high that are willing to talk about it and actually do it. So I you know, think I so, that. and I hope so. Um, yeah, I know you should totally keep score. Let's see. Yeah, and what's really interesting is Morningstar did a lot of research with the data because in the United States it was required disclosure legally that a money, that a fund manager actually tell the world how much they have invested in their fund. And when you do the actual numbers, you see that funds where the managers invest in their own funds actually outperform funds that are run by managers who don't have money, um, yeah. uh, their own skin in the game. So, uh, and then the second question was um, on a similar vein: If do you have any interesting favorite um, impact investments that are non Deepkin uh, that are out there that you've seen, even if it's not that hey, I recommend it, but it just it was cool. I thought it was an interesting idea. Well, I think the other thing that I'm really interested in is social purpose real estate. Um, I sit on the board of a foundation here in Vancouver, and um, you know we've allocated quite a bit of the portfolio, about forty percent, to um, uh, creating spaces for nonprofits to operate um, with reduced or subsidized rent. Um, and I think that's a that's a really interesting area, especially in a lot of Canadian cities where real estate is so expensive. That that's a great way for us to stimulate more social enterprise and a great place for foundations to invest because you know you also it's ultimately a great uh, you know it's ultimately a very secure um, you know real estate backed investment. Um, but you are just kind of putting more of your portfolio to work uh, in the mission, and uh, so you know, that's that's a that's another spot that I think is um, a really good one for Canadian impact investing. Have you seen any uh, retail offerings in that space at all? Uh, there's New Market Funds, I believe, does uh, affordable housing, um, mostly in British Columbia and Alberta. So I okay. think that's one option. But I, I, I think they only uh, in, uh, distribute to institutional investors at this time. So yeah, I've, I've whenever I've sort of come across that space, it's tended to be, I haven't seen anything available at a, at a, at a retail level, but it's, a, it's interesting. Yeah. Retail yeah. offerings are still really scarce in Canada. And um, I can tell you from this side that I, I don't think it's because impact asset managers don't want to issue retail, but uh, you know, Canada has a very robust 
securities and compliance environment. And you know, I think that served us well during the global financial crisis, but it does make it hard to bring new products to market for, for individual investors. It's uh, a steep hill sometimes. Yeah, robust is a, is a very <laughs> polite way of putting that. <laughs> um, well, that's awesome. Listen, thanks. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time today. We'll, we'll let you uh, get back to your uh, to work and everything. But um, just lastly, if people want to learn more about um, you, your work, Deepkin, where can they go? Yeah, deepkinimpact.com. Um, we've got a blog where we, we talk a lot about all the companies that we're visiting um, and the markets where we're operating. And uh, we also have a newsletter you can sign up for. And um, yeah, that, that's, follow us on Twitter also at uh, Deepkin Impact. And, uh, you know, just I wanted to say thanks for doing this. Uh, there's not uh, there's not a lot of these uh, resources available for people that are interested in impact investing in Canada. Uh, I think this is awesome. And I think we'll really help to build more bridges um, within within our community and, and bring new people in, especially younger people that are looking at doing this as a career. Um, you know, for us, that's sort of the, the secondary impact is, you know, wouldn't it be amazing for us to be a real hub for impact investing here in Canada um, and to have those skills? Um, here and that would be uh, a great a great sector for us to develop yeah i completely agree and thank you i i mean i'm i, I view that as part of the this is a purpose-based um endeavor to to really help get generate interest reduce the hurdles and create awareness and um empower people to really start um, moving their money into those spaces so thanks for your time alexa appreciate it thanks david Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.